Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8, Chronicles of UK Salafism and Insider Perspective. This particular episode shall focus on the year 2007, and I will begin by reflecting on the prevailing climate from previous years. And I'll begin with a headline from a journalist called Daniel Pepys, or Pipes, from the Jewish Chronicles, in which the headline read, Time to begin watching converts to see which are radicalised. This was a shift specifically to converts due to Germaine Lindsay's actions from 7-7 and before that Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. But we saw also a focus among the Muslim community, the more liberal elements, in an attempt to detract from their own communities, the South Asian community in particular, and deflect this concern of extremism, homegrown extremism, towards the convert community. We also see on the 11th of January 2007 an article that read Britain's New Preachers of Hate by a Bobby Pathak. And his article was followed by a Dispatches Undercover Mosque documentary the following Monday. This article was a prelude, you could say, to what was a very salacious, unsophisticated and damning documentary. Damning in the sense that the reporters deliberately edited what they had recorded to highlight particular aspects of speech from preachers, some Salafi at that, in order to sensationalise their story and cause even more alarm, thereby tapping into the prevailing climate of fear and anti-Muslim sentiment. They recorded imams and leaders like Abu Usama al-Dhahabi and recorded him out of context. There was a hue and cry about this from various sections of the society, not to mention the Muslims who re re retaliated to that by countering the narrative. But the damage was done already somewhat. Also, we saw an article in uh, the following month, the 19th of February 2007, which enti was entitled More Muslims Radicalised in the UK. This was a BBC article. And I'd like to refer to an eight-page report that reviewed an incident the previous year, on the 2nd of June, that being the Forest Gate incident in which an individual was shot. So the Independent Police Complaints Commission, the IPCC, provided a report, and I'll read some excerpts of it. The introduction beginning with, quote, In the early hours of the 2nd of June 2006, the Metropolitan Police mounted a counter-terrorist operation in 46 and 48 Lansdowne Road, Forest Gate in East London. During the operation, one of the residents of 46 Lansdowne Road, Mohammed Abdul Kahar, was wounded by a police firearm. The conclusion of the report read as follows, and I will quote an excerpt again. A shot was accidentally discharged. In the circumstances, I the author of the report, 
conclude that the officer has committed no criminal or disciplinary offence. Close quote. Amidst this climate, Salafis continued to embark on wider engagement, attending conferences, developing initiatives that extended beyond their mosques or organisations to counter-radicalisation and widen the narrative, the narrative so that society could see the mainstream elements and conducive elements of our social conservatism. And on the 26th to the 28th of February 2007, I was invited to and attended another Walton Park conference, this time entitled Countering Terrorism in Europe and North America, How Can a Community-Based Approach Be Developed? On the 2nd of March, I officially registered Street, my new organisation that dealt with youth interventions and engagement, with Companies House, the registered number being 6135 333. On the 10th of March, the monthly street report that I have in front of me highlighted some of the work that we were doing to get our centre up and established. So costing for new equipment and the requirements therein was done. We identified a site for youth provision. We did some youth development practice engaging with a number of youth. We met with the local Somali community and introduced them to our services. And we met with youth entities and other community leaders and also looked at a strategy for urban regeneration. On the 27th to the 29th of March, I was in Vancouver attending a Muslims of Tomorrow conference, MOT, where Muslim communities were in attendance and discussing strategies to combat violent extremism. And it was very new to them there. They didn't have many incidents of that at that particular stage. And some of the statutory bodies that they worked with, um, RMCP, attended as well. In April, members of my team and I met with some of the local gangs in Lambeth, PDC, then called Peel Them Crew, then um, developed into Poverty Driven Children and SMS. And 30 members of the gangs attended. Very productive meeting as well. And in May, my team continued its diversionary programmes, meeting with 20 to 25 to 30 youth engaged in positive interventions. I met with an audience of 200 youth to highlight that they were stakeholders in street, that we would develop organically with them according to their needs and requirements. We also did one-to-one -one support where required and we developed our policies around health and safety, child protection, etc. Moving on with the events, in October, the 18th to be specific, uh, a seminar was held by Aberystwyth University in Whitechapel and that seminar discussed the politics of radicalisation, reframing the debate and reclaiming the language. Now, interestingly, for those who see a lot of opposition amongst Muslim entities, Shaquille Beg, Imam Shaquille Beg, and Moazim Beg attended, they're not brothers, coincidentally, they also attended this um, seminar, and Shaquille sat beside me. Now, 
Many don't know previous relationships amongst many of the um, individuals in this scene, in the Muslim scene. Um, I used to be very close to Shaquille's brother, one of his brothers. I knew his older brother um, as well. Uh, Shaquille used to attend Brixton. Shaquille, as a result of me um, standing up for his brother during a Jamas conference in the 90s, in which there was a private sitting with members of Jamas, and his brother was sitting beside me and was challenged as to his identity and belonging to um, Jamas. And I stood up for him in front of everyone and said, he is Shaquille Begg's brother. And Shaquille was at the time a member of um, Jamas, but he was abroad, I think, in Medina when he was studying. That got to Shaquille and when he heard, he contacted me and he gave me a whole set of um, Al-Husri's um, Qur'ans, Qur um, his Qur'an recitation, sorry. Um, such was our relationship. So it, it, this, would this should come as a surprise to others because they then knew and would have been familiar with the opposition that Shaquille had to me and some of the incorrect statements that he issued against me in which when I met and confronted him with those statements, he withdrew them and admitted in front of his colleagues and mine that they were incorrect statements. Um, they were untrue statements in actuality. So I'm highlighting this to show that Shaquille and I did have a relationship in the 90s just like uh, a number of individuals, those who are now part of the Salafi Publications cult, um, many of us used to be together during the early and mid-90s until certain elements came amongst us, as I've highlighted in um, the Culture's Tendencies series that I've done. And from that point, it was division, fracturing, splintering because of these personalities and the strategy that they'd implemented um, from wherever they got it. I now want to dedicate the rest of this episode to a sensitive area that is seldom discussed transparently. And the reason I'm bringing it now is because there are published um, works and unpublished um, documents around this subject from 2007. And the subject I want to talk about is marriage, and divorce amongst Salafi communities. But I'm not going to speak from an advisory capacity. I'm only going to refer to observations that were prevalent at the time, that preceded that time and continue up to this day because Salafi communities, not only in the UK, we can look in North America as well, have a very bad reputation in the manner of the divorces, the family breakups, um, domestic abuse and various ills that are there. And I hasten to add that while I'm speaking about Salafi communities, it's not only Salafi communities that are plagued by this. There are other communities um, and cultural communities that have far worse problems um, than what I'm, I'm discussing here. However, there are a number of success stories amongst Salafi communities that do not get mentioned and I refer specifically to converts as I speak now. So, for example, I'm going to be looking at a book that was unpublished in which many of us were asked to contribute who were in plural marriage or had been in plural marriage. And it was written by a sister um, in the US and it was entitled Candid Reflections on Polygyny from the Muslim Ummah, as I 
intimated I was asked for a contribution and I did and I will read that contribution very shortly. But one of the things I'd like to highlight at this point now is the Salafi attitude and approach from the 90s and until now was and continues to be prescriptive. What do I mean by prescriptive? Looking at the text and saying it was a sunnah and therefore it should be done and not looking at the essence of the practice of, of marriage and meeting a, a potential spouse, not looking at the nuances that are there. And uh, as it refers to and relates to converts, without a community um, history within Islam, without that backdrop or traditional um, understanding, many mistakes have been made because we may revert to elements of pre-conversion, which is un-Islamic. Um, we have no affinity or connection with Islamic etiquettes, etiquettes because we are not from within that. So that prescriptive attachment to Quran and Hadith and Sunnah and the minimal maha, maha is the best one um, and our understanding and the sister hears um, us churning Quran and Hadith and thinks that we're religious as a result of that and we may see that the sisters wear niqab and she just wants to stay in the home and we think that that's the, the criteria and this is the perfect Muslimah and it's very, very prescriptive and that's problematic and the adherence to the Hadith that only a few meetings are required, which the Hadith doesn't say that in actuality, but we take it as that. You know, we only need to meet a few times. We know nothing of the potential spouse that we want to marry. Um, we don't take time. There's an urgency that's there. There's no support more widely from those who are experienced um, to say, take time, slow down. Um, in that instance, I'm talking generally, there are, there are other cases where, yes, that's taking place now that Salafi communities are more established, but it hasn't always been that way. There's also an idealistic and often unrealistic expectations regarding marriage. There's often impracticalities when considering marriage within that idealistic framework. And what has been done often, and it's not, again, specific to the Salafi community, but I have to speak concerning the Salafi community. Knowledge is what is put forward as the basis of why marriage is taking place. When in actuality, that is just a covering for the very emotive elements that are underscoring that urgency with which many Salafis have pursued marriage. So it's basic, basically emotional um, uh, requirements that are being sought to be fulfilled above that of knowledge. However, knowledge is the, the, the shroud or the umbrella under which these marriages are um, conducted. Now, the final point is many of us sought and continue to seek scholarly advice but we're not seeking that scholarly advice in the sense that our contexts, the reality that we're facing on the ground is being addressed. So when speaking to the scholars, they're going to speak within their own context. They're going to speak from the experiences they see culturally and locally. And then we're transposing that 
into a Western context and it often doesn't fit. I want to move forward now. There's much that can be said on this and I'm not an expert on this and I'm speaking from observations and I will say at this particular point that it's really important that those experienced counsellors and elders and mentors who have experience in advising and witnessing uh, marriages, successful marriages, not so successful marriages, they should really provide a discourse, maybe some podcasts among communities for those who are seeking marriage and those who are in marriage and even those who have been divorced so they can get an, a comprehensive understanding of the challenges of marriage and that the way that it's being conducted in some areas amongst Salafi communities needs to be redefined. So I'm going to read um, some experiences of Muslim men. Now, there's a wealth of uh, information from Muslim women and I don't want to be patronising and read that. And from this book that I'm reading, they're overwhelmingly positive. So I, I don't want to do that. I think that uh, our sisters and the women are articulate enough to speak for themselves and they may feel that there's been a selectivity if I choose particular excerpts from women's observations with plural marriage, first wife, second wives and the like. Um, I will touch upon now, as I read from these excerpts, on polygyny. Um, and what I've mentioned about prescriptiveness, idealism, impracticalities, emotive, not knowledge-based, scholarly advice that's out of context, all of that applies to polygyny even more. And again, one of the things regarding scholarly advice, many of the times, and I'm speaking from personal experience, when seeking advice from scholars, which often silences a partner, a first wife, or someone that you're going to get married to, or people who are detracting from marriage. Everyone goes quiet because, oh, he got advice from a scholar. But one of the things we've got to consider as well, many of the scholars that we seek advice from, not only are they not within the context that we are living in, but many of them don't practice polygyny themselves. And when, if you know some of them and meet some of them, it's a desire that they have or it's something they'd like to do, but their societal constructs do not allow it even though they are from Arab or Muslim and or Muslim lands. So moving on to the um, excerpts and again, why I haven't referred to, and I'm not going to refer to the women's perspective is because it's better to hear women's voices articulating in this realm of marriage because they have a lot to say, a lot of constructive things to say um, and it's best that they represent in that instance. But I will refer to a very good book on research, PhD studies converted to a book, um, The Making of a Muslim Salafi Woman by Annabel Inge. Chapter six, Marriage Completes Half Your Religion, Sister, Salafi Matchmaking. And I'd, I would urge individuals to read that if they want to hear Muslim women's voices regarding the challenges of marriages and the pitfalls and the successes. I will now read from this uh, book, Candid Reflections on Polygyny and quote some excerpts from some men who um, are married in polygyny or were married. And one of them mentions here, quote, I married my second wife after one year of marriage to my first. 
I never consult my wives before marriage because women are very emotional and cannot mentally see their husbands with another woman, let alone having children with that woman. This shows that their relationship with regards to love is with her husbands and not Allah, which is a dangerous thing, close quote. I've quoted this because this herein lies a problem. Because a number of Salafi men approach marriage and plural marriage particularly with this view. And um, again, it's problematic and it's quite destructive to the marital home, the existing marital home when it comes to plural marriage. And some may ask, from what perspective are you speaking? Um, I'm speaking from a perspective of experience and uh, an upward learning curve that was that spanned 20 years. Moving to the next quote from another individual who was in plural marriage. And I don't know these individuals, their names are not given. Quote, it is from good manners for a brother to tell his existing wife or wives when he is planning, to, planning on marrying another. But women almost always flip out. So more and more brothers are encouraging each other to get married first and then tell their wives. It may seem dishonest, but it's the route that brothers are being forced to take. It doesn't always work because the first wife usually ends up leaving and taking the kids. The brother then breaks down and divorces the second wife. This happened to me when I married my second wife, but I refused to divorce her. And in the end, my first wife came back, but it was not easy. Again, an element of dishonesty here in marrying and then telling the second wife and, and many individuals, not many, but those who embark upon polygyny, plural marriage, do this. And it's causing a problem on how the Salafi communities are perceived. I'm aware in the US it's quite acute and the problems are adverse, but it's similar in the UK to a lesser extent. And another small excerpt I will give um, from another um, individual in plural marriage before reading my account, which is quite a long one. They gave me quite a lot of um, uh, leeway to reproduce my account and I will share it and reflect on aspects of idealism since that time. So this individual, quote, says, a brother who intends to take on another wife needs to be very responsible and to stick to the situation no matter how difficult it gets. He needs to be honest. He needs to be a man and not a boy in terms of thinking. He has to have a sense of humour. He has to know how to deal with women with wisdom and not anger or aggression. And he definitely needs a sense of humour. Close quote. My account read more detailed, quoting, when I embraced Islam, I had been with my partner for a number of years. Marrying again would enable me to understand how to love according to the deen and not from jahiliya, pre-Islam. The latter often being a, a, a love based on shirk. And that is true in the element that coming to Islam with a partner that you've been with for a long time, that you're in love with, and knowing the depth of that love and not being able to discern 
the extent of that love and are you committing shirk with that individual or even other things that you love for example it can be a woman it can be something else um that you're in love with music or whatever um continuing with the quote also the bosnian conflict was on and being so near to it imbued me in me the urgency to do something other than fight and give charity some of which i was involved in when i heard about the abuse of women and children i thought i should go and marry a bosnian sister and bring her back to my country so she could lead a better life away from her war-torn country. Some of my friends highlighted the fact that there were sisters in our own country with children who were finding it difficult to get married due to the number of children they had, cultural issues, etc. And that marrying such a sister would be as rewarding. I therefore put the word out that I was looking for such a sister, not without any children, but those with children. I spoke with my existing wife, who understandably found it difficult at first, but wouldn't stand in my way. I didn't seek another wife because there was a deficiency in my existing marriage. I sought another wife due to the strength of my first marriage. Close quote. There's a lot more that was said here. And one of the things I mentioned was, quote, brothers need to really examine whether they're taking on a second, third or fourth wife is the best thing for them, their existing wife, children and the sisters they are thinking about marrying. They should ask themselves why they want to get married. They should also consider whether they are prepared for the consequences, i.e. the change in the relationship with their first wife, less time with their children from that first relationship, the possibility of the first wife, first wife wanting a divorce if she sees a deterioration in her relationship after he marries again, etc. If there is doubt here and their desires are dictating what they should do, it is important that they desist. The problems that ensue from such a standpoint are extremely detrimental for all. Um, I mentioned some other things. One of them, that brothers, men, should not fall into the bravado of their colleagues encouraging them. Because you get this a lot, especially from the individuals who are not married and they themselves are desiring a second, third or whatever wife, but they do not have the gusto or the um, ability at that time to do it. But they then transfer that desire that willingness into that bravado with their colleagues pushing him into the circumstances as i said there's a lot here i think i was presumptuous in some instances on reflection when i was saying uh why it was beneficial for brothers men why it was beneficial for the female um for the, the muslim nation at large um and there are a few pages here for where i discussed polygyny and marriage in general. And again, on reflecting upon my own words in this particular unpublished um, book, I still hold much of it to be accurate and true. Um, however, I believe that like a number of individuals, there was inexperience and idealism, despite the fact that I have been in that institution or was in that institution um, for approximately 20 years. I will conclude now by reading a very important um, interview or excerpts of an interview and it's an apt conclusion to what I've discussed around elements of marriage and um, plural marriage. And I'm not speaking pro-plural marriage, polygyny or anti-polygyny, but highlighting uh, an affair and a situation, circumstances that affect the Salafi community within the wider Muslim community and the social, um, socio-cultural effects 
are quite adverse when it comes to the children growing and the maintenance in that regard, the mental well-being if uh, things are not adhered to uh, correctly and the lack of experience as a wider community living in a non-Muslim monogamous society has on everyone, including the individuals who decide to go into polygyny. Also, I want to speak on a small matter of divorce. I don't mean small in itself as a subject, but I mean in the area where racism and prejudice is the undercurrent when particular couples from ethnic backgrounds or mixed mixed cultural relationships end up um, coming before Sharia courts or coming before um, mosque leaders. And it's unfortunate that where there are um, Asian couples, South Asian couples involved, and this is from experience, witnessing it myself, the Sharia communities and their councils, the Sharia councils and the Asian communities will do whatever is possible to preserve that couple of the same ethnicity, of the same background. However, if it's a mixed couple and one happens to be from the South Asian community, particularly if it's a woman and the husband is African-Caribbean, then we see very little effort when comparing to couples of the same background to maintain, preserve, encourage that couple to stay together. And this has been reported by individuals in similar relationships for the past 20 years. And again, that points to an underlying prejudice and frowning upon these mixed cultural relationships. I will draw to a conclusion now by reading the excerpts of this interview of Um Abdullah, the wife of Sheikh Mohammed Ibn Saleh al-Uthaymin, rahimahullah, which was reviewed, finalised and produced in January, 7th of January 2007. Uh, Dr. Saleh al-Saleh, rahimahullah, um, reviewed it. And this interview was conducted after the Sheikh had passed, in Ramadan 1427. And I'll read particular questions. And it's a lesson for us all how the Sheikh was with his children, his family, especially in light of this particular episode where I've addressed elements of marriage and the problems that are prevalent amongst Salafi communities up and down the UK. Question. How did the Sheikh interact, that Sheikh Muthaymin, um, rahimahullah, with his children in their private lives. Um Abdullah answers, his dealings with his sons and daughters fell into two stages. First, in their childhood, he, Rahimullah, was keen to be close to them, take care of them, raise some of the Islamic principles in them and follow their educational achievements. In addition, he made sure to direct, admonish and incite them. For instance, he would sometimes take the children with him to the masjid to perform some of the fard prayers. Also, he would encourage them to fast some days of Ramadan. 
Furthermore, he would incite them to memorize some of the short surahs of the Quran and reward them on that. In the stage of youth and maturity, he was firm concerning their fulfilling of the religious obligations and in discipline in cases of negligence. He would couple that with direction and leniency. At certain times, he was not hesitant to do what was sufficient to change or correct their mistakes. In addition, he used to put full trust in them to do certain things so they could learn to depend upon themselves. He used to continually encourage them on righteousness and check, the, check on them regarding that. I move to another question now about how the Sheikh was with his family and taking them out. And this is another issue because we see amongst some Salafi communities, some Salafi marriages, that the men pay little attention to their wife's needs and the children's needs and the mental health needs such as taking them out, give, getting them into open spaces. During this time where we face a pandemic and there's social, social um, isolation, we need to consider what the next steps will be once this is, has passed and how we can engage and partake in family time, quality family time, outside of the home, on excursions, on picnics like the Sheikh. So the answer is here again. Would the Sheikh ever go outside with his, with his family for a picnic? Um Abdullah answers, yes. The family used to have a weekly picnic, a weekly picnic on Fridays after Salatul Jummah. We would go to an area in the wilderness close by and bring our lunch. He utilised this time to share in some activities with the children, like foot racing and solving puzzles. Also, he would bring a small rifle and compete with his children in aiming and shooting. Another question. How many children did the Sheikh have? Um Abdullah answers, the Sheikh had five sons and three daughters. The next question came, very important question. Who amongst his children was the closest to his heart? And she answered, the Sheikh used to deal justly with his children in all affairs, major and minor. If he found any kind of distinction between them, he would never declare it openly because this is not from justice. If he was keen to be just in matters lighter than this, then what should we expect here? Then she asked, uh, the questioner asked Umm Abdullah, who amongst his children was most affected by his death? And she said, all of them were. And the reality of the matter is that I used to feel that we were not alone in this as he was a father to the Muslims around the world who all felt a great shock by his death. I'm going to move on and there's a key question, some key questions here um, I will conclude with. One of them is quite touching where Um Abdullah was asked, did he, rahimahullah, cry upon the death of Sheikh Abdulaziz bin Baz, rahimahullah? And Um Abdullah answered, he was greatly affected by the death of his Sheikh from whom he took knowledge. Everyone around him felt the extent of the profound impact it had. May Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala, make us meet them all in the paradise of bliss. And a question here. We would like an admonition from you to the wives of the callers and students of knowledge. And Umm Abdullah answered, and this is quite a profound answer, to the wives. She said, they should preserve their husbands openly and secretly. In addition, they should prepare for them the best situations and conditions to continue providing their duties of dawah and knowledge. Also, I incite them that they should not be bothered by the busy schedule of their husbands, 
and their time spent traveling, seeking knowledge, reading and doing dawah. By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's will, they are sharing in the reward. And that's an important aspect there. Many um, amongst the Salafi community are focused in dawah. And they need to check. The brothers and the sisters, the male and female, need to check the extent of this dawah because some do dawah and or profess to be doing dawah and in actuality they're just wasting time and relaxing with their, their colleagues and leaving their families at home um, to struggle, the wife having no um, uh, break with the children or from the children because she's with them for morning, noon, night, educator, mother, nurturer, and the husband is not there. And often, some of the Salafi um, uh, members of the community, the men, are not even providers as well because they, they're leaving their wife on state benefits while boasting that they don't take money from the state, but their wives do. The final point before concluding. Um Abdullah was asked, was the Sheikh married to anyone else other than you? And how many wives did he have? And Um Abdullah answered, no, the Sheikh was not married to other than me. He married two wives before me. His first wife died. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not intend for the second marriage to continue. And she was then asked, we need from you an admonition to men who have more than one wife. And Umm Abdullah's answer is emphatic. She replied, justice, justice, justice.